0: Welcome to the SORCH podcast, where we explore Sikh and wider South Asian history, art, and philosophy with historians, artists, and researchers. All right, do you want to first perhaps introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, of course. Uh, So my
1: name is uh, Satnam Singh. I've been living in Denmark my entire life. Um, I have a background in uh, marketing and economy, um, and then later on I did my master's in cross-cultural studies. And just shortly, like professionally, for the past 10 years or so, I've been working in the area of crime prevention. Firstly, with uh, with the prevention of ISIS recruitment, Al-Shabaab recruitment and so forth in the wider Copenhagen area. And then uh, later on, what I'm doing now at the moment is a, a, a national program to uh, prevent uh, violence against women. And in right. my spare time, I do all of my research and all this nerdy stuff.
0: Well, it definitely sounds like you're kept busy. Um, Just out of curiosity, then, you said you were born and kind of bred in in Denmark. Are your parents both then from Punjab and born and bred in India? Yeah,
1: exactly. And they came in the 70s and
0: 80s. Out of curiosity, why did they pick Denmark?
1: Yeah, so Denmark is actually quite a small country in general. There's about 5 million people here. And out of those 5 million, there's about 1,000 Sikhs. Um, And most of them, they came here, um, a lot of them came by accident. Uh, They were trying to get to Germany. They were trying to get to the UK and other places. um, And some of them, they might not been able to get any visas for those countries. And then they uh, shifted and moved to, to Denmark instead.
0: Wow that's that's pretty amazing. Um, How was it then or how well how is it as well actually at the moment um, but how was it growing up in Denmark as a Sikh? How how was that?
1: Well I didn't uh, so I grew up mostly around um, what you say Danish ethnic Danes um, so it's like in my classroom you we weren't really that many with a uh, with another ethnic background. So yeah. Denmark is not that multicultural compared to the UK, Canada and other places. So you always had that feeling that you kind of stood out. Um, I didn't keep my case until I was about 19 years old. Uh, so until then, I t- kind of just fitted in uh, basically. Um, there's not that much racism in Denmark, at least not in, in the wider uh, Copenhagen capital area where I, I've been my whole life. Yeah. Um, so I haven't really experienced that much either before I be- um, I started uh, wearing uh, a turban at work afterwards as well. I haven't really experienced that much. People obviously look every now and then, but I mean, that's just normal, isn't
0: it? That's going to happen when you look so beautiful, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, all right. So no, fair enough. It's just, it's always interesting to understand kind of your background and your upbringing and how that kind of all feeds into um, the work then that, that you're obviously doing and the research that you're doing. Just leading on into that then, what was it that sparked your interest to kind of look further into Siki?
1: Yeah, so it's actually quite a good question because I've been wondering about this for the past couple of years as well. Because I actually spend a lot of time, a lot of my spare time, I spend that on researching history, philosophy and so forth. Um, and I think at least my answer at the moment is it goes back to my history teacher when I was uh, eight, nine years old. He was very inspirational, the way he taught history. I remember when we got to like recent modern history, yeah, uh, I was so we had like history classes, I think twice a week. So I think yep. it was, like Tuesdays and Thursdays. Still so remember, remember this one incident. We're talking about the uh, the indigenous uh, Americans or Indians, whatever they're called, uh, in, in in the Americas, and uh, we're talking about these tribes that that um, that have never seen like civilization, as we say. Uh, yeah, like they've just been so far into the amazon that they, they don't know what's outside these forest areas and i was like so intrigued by that i remember i spent that whole weekend trying to come up with theories on why they <laughs> had not gone into the wider america I was like amazing. sitting there all week and I couldn't sleep, and I was like waiting for Tuesday that I could like, <laughs> I could come up with my theory. Now the funny thing is that I had a subscription on a paper last year, and yeah. uh, they had a huge history section, and there was this professor in New Zealand. He actually came up with that same theory. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Well, it's funny you say that. It was your primary school teacher that inspired you, because I remember a Year Five teacher. Uh, I remember we had like a. It was I think it was a project to do. It was like, go and research either the Greeks or the Romans. Uh, And I remember going back into school and handing in the assignment. And the teacher was like, oh, this is so good. I want you to give a a speech to the class and again in when I was doing my GCSEs Mr. Holgate was his name uh, I still remember him he actually taught my younger brother as well and again he just brought just like you were saying he just brought history to life it's going to sound really nerdy but I'm sure you will appreciate this which is all of the other kind of lessons and disciplines that you do are really quite boring but for some reason history is yeah. something quite engaging something you can really delve into and you kind of get lost into it um, exactly. so yeah so yeah i got to say props to those teachers
1: I did um, like I said for the past 10 years or so I've been working in um, in the crime prevention uh, programs uh, nationally and so forth but I did a little detour at some point because like all this trauma and all this um, all this misery you get a bit like it goes to your head yeah. so I needed to like work with something positive so it's, I took a detour and went into the ministry of education working with like school capacity building and so forth uh, for about three years now The interesting thing is that we were um, one of my... when, when I was talking to my colleagues, they're asking, like, why are you working here in the Ministry of Education? They, all of them always said, like, I had this one teacher that just made a huge difference for me. And <laughs> um, so, so, like, it just really shows the importance of having good teachers in your early years. Yes, certainly. Look, look at the power they have. Like, they can really influence you or they can actually destroy you as well. Yeah, uh, yeah For yeah. the rest of your life.
0: Completely. So that
1: is, and also, I have this notion, this principle I'm trying to live by that's basically always honour your teachers whoever they were just always honour your teachers and be grateful to them one way or the other
0: no well I definitely can't disagree with that and, and in uh, hindsight actually the subjects that I I did the best in or kind of enjoyed the most were actually all because of the teachers my history teacher my math teacher I look back and actually it was because of them that I did any any good um Mm. I remember my biology teacher was a complete so-and-so um and as you could imagine I didn't do so well in biology So, (laughs) so so it goes to show completely um and I think with coming from a Sikh setup or an Indian setup you understand kind of the teacher-student setup in a very different light. So there's also that respect, kind of from from the get-go, really, as you're or start. Mm-hmm
1: even like in our upbringing uh we're taught to respect teachers in, in a different in a, in, a, in a way that's very different from like the danish students i was always taught as a kid never to put any books on the floor
0: yeah yeah same same even now i get i, I the other day um i was going through my bookshelf and i put a book on the floor and i was like oh no, need to pick that up that that's exactly. not going there um and it's, it's just automatic same,
1: like, exactly it's automatic looks like you get an allergy. So even like the words that we use to to articulate this, and this is something I didn't appreciate until I started reading about Indian philosophy and Sikhi and so forth. So like the word for teacher in in, in the English language is someone obviously who teaches you something. In Danish, it's called leia. It basically means the same thing, someone that teaches you something. But in Indian languages, whatever regions, the words often used is guru. And as you know, guru means someone that brings you light and takes you out of darkness
0: what book are you currently reading and if you're not reading anything uh, what book was the last book that you read so I'm reading a couple
1: of books at the moment Um, so one of them is the it's a classic I recommend everyone to buy it it's called The Arts of the Three Kingdoms Okay. Um, is by Susan, She's the editor Susan Strong, but it's actually an anthology of different writers just talking about and explaining and uh, analyzing the Sikh art at the time of the uh, Maharaja um and, and the Sikh uh, Kingdom era. Um, and then I'm also reading uh, other but different books um, that deals with that time of Maharaja Singh period. Because I'm actually trying at the moment, i trying to do some research on uh, the patronage um, and commissioning of writings in Kashmir. Okay.
0: during SQL. Man, that's amazing. Um, have you found anything interesting then in your uh, research so far?
1: Yeah, so this is uh, like a lot of the other topics I usually dive into. It's, it's an area that doesn't really have much information available in printed sources. Um, yes. So I am I haven't really found that much. I found a few... Uh, hints and, uh, here and there, that the Sikh rulers, when they took over Kashmir, they were commissioning uh, illustrated uh, literature, uh, you know, like miniature paintings and so forth. I'm not talking about Guru Granthav, so here, but yeah. also like literature in general. Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying to so basically dive about what these were.
0: Okay. just. Out of interest, yesterday I was reading about Jhansi's uh, Gadamgudiya, and apparently, I—correct me if I'm wrong—but he was the f- one of the first missiles to conquer the area around Kangra, which is obviously uh, uh, kind of synonymous with art and and kind of literature.
1: Yeah, exactly. So like the, the Sikh missiles, and especially just us in and the others, they went into the hill Punjab Hill areas yeah. very early on in the missile period. Uh, they didn't conquer it, but they were just going in there doing some raids from the, uh, from the existing rulers, basically taking like the tax money and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Basically just set up their own, what do you call that name? It's like the paramountcy of, of the Sikhs in, in the northern India. It was yeah. like a way of subjugating.
0: Like, well, they had their Zaki and... system, so exactly. everyone had to pay them. And, and I perhaps, I guess you're correct, formally they weren't rulers, as in they had an annex to the territory and they hadn't kind of formally taken it over. But in terms of day-to-day kind of um, machinations, they were seen as the rulers, if that makes sense.
1: Yes, yeah, so we can actually go into more into that when we talk about the Muslim rulers. But the, the idea was that the Sikhs were basically trying to take over uh, the power of all of northern India. But what they did yeah. was that in many cases, they left the local rulers to just rule and administrate. But 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 the, on the overall basis, the Sikhs were in many ways the, the official or yeah. the unofficial rulers because they were paid these Iraqi money for protection. Yeah. Uh, and this also meant that because... These different uh, areas came under some co- some kind of Sikh protection. It meant that the borders opened, so that it could be a free movement of traders and Sikhs and Hindus, and so forth. And this also meant that a lot of painters from the hills started venturing into the plain uh, Punjab areas. Very uh, and this obviously this brought about this brought about a lot of cultural changes, which is what my research is actually about. All right, or we well we can go a little more into that
0: later, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We'll dive into that. Okay, well, just continuing then to get a better idea of yourself. Um, who would you say is your favourite um, historical figure and why? And it doesn't have to be Sikh-related. It could be literally anyone out of Sikh, um, out of history, sorry. <laughs>
1: it's probably a cliché, but I would say it could be some Okay. Um, I, I did my first lecture in Gibson Toa about four years ago in the UK. Yeah. And, and like just doing that research,
0: uh, it just
1: really blew my mind. Like because he for me he symbolizes the the the, um, the golden era of Sikh intellectual um what do you call it? The Sikh intellectual movement, you can say. Yeah. Like the way he wrote his poetry, the, the knowledge he imbibed into his writings, the vast expanse of literature he was diving into, that like, the, the people he's quoting from just really, for me, it's, it's really inspirational. And um, so he's like, he's usually known to be the author of the Suraj Prakash Grant. Um, yeah. And, and we just automatically assume that's like the the stories about the gurus. But underneath that, there's so much vidya. There is so much knowledge that he's building upon and expanding upon. Um, it just really blows your mind. So again, it's probably a cliche, but for me, like he's he's probably my main inspirational um, character of Sikh history, I would say. And okay. from, from Danish history and Westerns, obviously different authors.
0: Who would you say is your historical figure from wider history or just general history per se
1: um, I would say it's a, it's a Danish philosopher called Guntvi so he's basically like the founding father of, of Danish uh, Danish society like the way the Danish institutions are built today the democratic system the way the schooling system the way we engage with each other they come from his ideas and his uh, his, uh, his way of thinking how modern society should look like so for instance the idea of free education uh, his, his idea that that knowledge and vidya should be taken away from the church and put into a neutral ground, uh, being like the public schools that we have today. Yeah. And it's such an interesting thing. A lot of the things we take for granted in the West today is actually coming from the thoughts and ideas of people of of his caliber.
0: All right. Okay. Well, um, moving on then, this question in particular is in relation to your research into Sikh history and Sikh philosophy, what would you say would be the most vital quality that you need whilst doing the work you're doing?
1: Um, so I would say it's um, again, it's such a cliche, but like impartiality. Because okay. we have a lot of sources in front of us, we have a lot of uh, like material sources, being books and uh, he- material heritage, architecture, coins, and so forth. Uh, but then we also have like traditions, immaterial sources, like the yeah. traditions that are passed down to us. So the question is, how of this rich material, how do we make sense of that? Um, and one of the downfalls is that sometimes you're conditioned into looking yeah. into these sources.
0: In a particular light.
1: In a particular yeah. light. And yeah. I think that's very dangerous. So if, if, because what your research then does is that it just confirms your own bias and it just yeah. confirms the beliefs that you held before that.
0: Yeah. But do you think you can actually ever be completely non-biased and technically... I guess what we're arguing is can you can be completely objective? My personal opinion is I don't think you can ever be completely objective. I think you can try and work towards that ideal, um, but you're always going to have some t- type of kind of personal impact. In- yeah, there's always going to be something that's going to kind of make you tick. And equally, it might not necessarily be you who is... Um, being biased it's also the fact that the information you're bringing out into wider society without kind of the necessary context and an explanation can be taken out of like can be taken out of context and misunderstood
1: I think it obviously it's impossible to be 100% impartial um, but I think as as, as researchers um, it's, it's very vital that you're constantly aware of am I actually bringing out new readings and, and being faithful yeah. and loyal to this particular book uh, source or am i just confirming my own biases so obviously yeah. it's not 100 percent possible but i think you should have that awareness while you're engaging with these texts um, and yeah. the other thing is it's, it's very difficult especially if you're if you're studying a tradition that you already believe in and um, yeah definitely. because what can happen is that you have to go, this is something we also talked about uh, while I was working at the Ministry of Education, sometimes you have to go against your own tradition or your yeah. own, child. what we in Danish bandomsnets, uh, like what you were taught as a kid, suddenly yeah. you have to question that. And for many people that's really, really difficult um, and com- really frightening as well. Because if, if what I was taught for the past 20 years as a kid growing up is not true, yeah, who am I then, right?
0: Yeah, no, completely. I remember doing my dissertation um, and it was, I can't remember the title exactly, but it was something like Outline Post-Colonial Sea Consurgency Within India. And I remember my dissertation tutor basically have, saying the same thing you've just said. Also, as you said, is as long as you're as long as you're appreciative and honest to yourself in that you're going to try to be impartial and try to be kind of as non-biased as possible mm. um except we know that you can't ever be 100% objective i think as long as you're trying to strive for that ideal yeah like what else can you do right exactly
1: and also think another thing is that you need when you're doing research you need historical methods Yes, as, as your tools of analysis sounds very basic. But what I mean by that is that you need a framework in order to read these texts. But sometimes there's a text that says ABC. <laughs> but because you have a certain conditioned mindset, what you read into it is ABCDEFG. Like you, yeah. you add a lot of meaning into it. It's yep. not really in the book. Sometimes you have to be truthful to the, to the to the writings. You shouldn't add too much information into it that's not really there. And you no, have no. to take it at face value.
0: Yeah, no, you're completely right. I, I think kind of carrying on what you're saying, but just bringing it in relation to Sikh kind of philosophy, history, and, and thought. One thing that I found quite um, mind-blowing, to be honest, is um, a lot of the books that Kamalpid Pradesi produces and, 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 and yeah. translates the level of information and the, the the various kind of meanings um and the references to all of these different kind of Vedantic and Sikh texts um although I don't think there was necessarily a distinction but anyway um it's just mind-blowing so yesterday I was reading mm. his book about Ragmala and how uh there are six different kind of forms of rag, and how rag also means color and it also Mm. means uh, kind of melody and how actually Maraj has combined both of those meanings in his kind of uh, definition of rag. And you're just like, wow, most Mm. people wouldn't even know that to be able to tell everyone else. And secondly, Mm. those who do know are very few and far between. And I think actually kind of relating it back to what you were saying is not only do we sometimes add our own understanding to text but a lot of the time our own understanding is severely limited and as a result it limits our understanding of whatever it is we're engaging with so just bringing it back to the argument if you don't know or you're not appreciative of all of these wider context meanings understandings whatever they are through that narrow kind of um, perspective you're going to come to wrong conclusions by default mm. you, you don't have the information therefore how can you get to the right in a sense it also keeps you awake at night because you're kind of like well have i done justice to the text or to the area i'm actually researching mm. in um but
1: it's, it's, it's also not it's exactly what you say is 100 uh, true and it's, it's not just about narrowing the meanings it's also about adding too much into the meanings if yes. you know what i mean yes
0: yes yes um, and the last one in just kind of getting to generally understand you a little bit more, uh, how do you stay ahead of the de- developments in your field? Uh, is the, I don't know, is there something that you subscribe to? Is there someone who gives you all the insider knowledge? Um, do you just keep yourself busy with your personal research?
1: Yeah, so, like, because I'm isolated here in Denmark, I was about to say, (laughs) Um, most of my research and everything has been on my own. Like, there's not, like, a big scholarly Sikh network like you have in the UK. We don't really have that here in Denmark. So most of it has just been, like, me going to the library, buying the books, reading them on my own, maybe using social media to discuss them with with other people. Um, So I would say, like, in the past 10 years, this has been my main approach. Um, And then, obviously uh i'm connected in many ways with uh, some of the main scholars in the field yeah. and i have email conversations with them i uh, every now and then i have an idea i write to them ask them about their opinions they sometimes say like know, this doesn't make sense because there's a source 20 years earlier that says the opposite fair enough nice um, and at other times they're like oh that's really interesting try to look more into that and then i have a project for the next six months going on
0: so they help you direct what you're doing and, and kind of give you the impetus to kind of move in whichever direction then.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I have been offered to do a PhD in the UK on the uh, the Kavis of Nandpur. Uh, I have been thinking about taking up that offer. Um, so obviously that would put me in a different uh, situation and position uh, because I can do this, you can say, on a full-time basis, whereas now at the moment it's mostly on a it's mostly on a, what do you call that? It's, it's uh, hobby. Time. Yeah, part yeah. Part time, yes. Yeah, um, but it's interesting, just quickly, just going back to your other question. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important to those people listening that they take on historical methods and how to analyze historical texts, because it gives you a framework that, that basically gives you. So much more value from those same books, Um, and it gives you a different understanding as well on how these different books are related to one another. Just sounds a bit uh, sloppy. Let me just uh, explain it. Um, So sometimes the way, especially in the traditional way, you come up with some uh, saying about Quranic or you say that someone's like you come up with maybe even something controversial, and then you you.
0: I've got good. a good example. It's like yep. um, saying the gurus were against portraits and uh, and images of themselves, and yet yep. there's a contemporary painting of Guru Hargobind Ji.
1: Yeah, but for instance, in terms of using historical method uh, in order to... to Basically, that's a good example, for instance. Um, let's say I claim that... Uh, I make a claim to say that the guru said you can't make portraits of the gurus, right? Yeah. And then you've, you'll put in... Uh, and to substantiate your claim, you'll you'll throw on uh, six different sources um, that says so, right? You, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. It doesn't exist, but let's just say there is a source from the Surish Prakash. There's one from from the Pant Prakash. There's one from the from, um, the Parkash, There's one from the, uh, the, the, uh, the Mema Prakash. Like then people that are not trained in historical training, they'll say, "Wow, there are six different sources." That says yes. this, so it yes. must be true, right? But if you're using historical approach, you wouldn't say that these six different sources are six independent sources. No. Because what you would do is that you would take those six different books and you would actually analyze each of them individually and say, all right, we know that the second author, he had actually read the,
0: first the writings one. of the first yeah, one. Yeah, and the yeah. fifth
1: one, he had read the f- writings of the second one and the, and the first one. Yeah. So these are not six Independent, independent sources,
0: yeah, because yeah.
1: some of them cancel each other out, so and it's then, actually uh, just yeah. two sources we're talking about here. We don't have six sources here, yep. and This is a very important, um, historical method that 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 basically can give you quite a good framework to to work within because otherwise, you can just often have like eight different sources from the eighth century saying one thing, but again, if they had just gotten this information from one another, they're not hundred. Like just using a practical example, let's say. Uh, I see a car crash um, down the road. I go t- t- thirty minutes later, I go teach hundred students. I tell them what had happened, and they go tell their families, Are we talking about one hundred eyewitnesses here? Or yeah. are we talking about one eyewitness because I was the one who saw it, and I related it on to everyone else. I think a lot of the way the Sikh history is, is, is taught today is that we just we just name drop all these sources and make yes. it sound like we have seven independent sources that are framing yes. one thing. But that's not, from his, at least from the point of historiosity, that's not really how it works.
0: But I think you've also hit upon something quite poignant, actually, in, in the last kind of the penultimate word you used, which is historiosity. Uh, um, but that's only if you're within that kind of framework. Mo- a lot of people who are engaging with Sikh history or... As I like to say, uh, Twitter preaching—they—they mm-hmm. they only take one text or they only take one source and go, "Yep, that's it. I've resolved all of the issues that 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 faced the band." But actually, and one thing we, you'll appreciate, especially working in academia, is it never stops. It's a constantly evolving theory. I think if 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 anything that people can take away from 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 the bit we're talking about is actually. historical methods and just the ability to keep engaging so you you and i might not agree on certain things but we'll have a discussion constructively to to see where we disagree agree and perhaps actually one of us or both of us will turn around and go i'm gonna go do more research now
1: and it also goes back to your initial question like when i said like we need to as a, as you need to be open-minded and, and loyal to yeah. the sources out there. so you shouldn't just take one source that, that backs up your viewpoint. you should actually put all of them out there um, mm-hmm. in order to see how how can we make sense of the material in, in front of us and obviously this, the, the, the method of historiosity also has its limitations and sometimes you need to, obviously you need the tradition in order to take things further. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it shouldn't be like an extremist that only takes one viewpoint. You should use, uh, basically take Vidya from all angles. That's basically yeah. my main point.
0: Completely. Yeah. Okay. All right. We'll now we'll just delve into generally what what you're working on, what you're doing. Before we dive into that, what I would like you to explain is, what do you mean when you say the Anandpur Dharbar? I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who do know what it means And what it And and uh, what it signifies I'm sure there's a lot of people Who don't And equally The same thing With the early missile period What are you referring to?
1: Yeah so Um so during the uh, 1680s, so this is the time where Guru singh Ji becomes the Guru. Um, the city of Anandpur, where the Guru had been, um, the Guru had been for, for for a few decades. The city of Anandpur becomes a, you can say, multicultural center of learning uh, and a cultural hub that attracted Hindu, Muslim, Sikh scholars uh, and poets from, from faraway kingdoms and, and destinations. And this is something that I find really fascinating um, because this is obviously. Through the agency of the guru, that he's he's creating this, uh, inter- what do you call it? Um, a cultural hub, intellectual center in 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 the center of the Sikh seat of power, and and I would say that this is an important time period uh, because this is where you start to see the Sikhs advance from being you could say a religious group of people to actually becoming a distinct political nation on the basis of their particular cultural civilization. I mean, these are really big words, but I mean it seriously when I say this is a really important uh, time period because this is when the Gurguven Singh infuses um, knowledge and civilizational wisdom into the Sikh uh, courts um, of the time in, in, in northern India. Okay. And I would say it's a golden age that lasts about a quarter of a century. Um, but I would say the impacts have lasted all, all the way till today.
0: Just going back to what you were saying about how um, at, at this point in time, um, kind of the cultural and kind of the wider social aspects of, of the Sikh community were being crystallized. Why would you say that's occurring at this point in particular?
1: I think so. It's, it's through the, again, the agency of Guru in the um knowing that the Sikhs will have to eventually stand on their own feet. Okay. Uh, there's not going to be any more human gurus uh, yeah. after them. So they will need to to be, like a, a movement needs to kickstart that kind of sh- throws them into the world in terms of its literature, in terms of its knowledge, in terms of its uh, basically how to govern and rule uh, on your yep. own, because yep. you don't have a, a guru that is there to, to assist you. And I think this is why you start seeing this at the time of Guru Kulmasindji. But as many other scholars have said, it, it starts earlier on with the earlier gurus as well, but it just takes on a completely different importance during the time of Guru Kulmasindji.
0: Okay, I see what you're saying. So it isn't that the the Dharabad is something unique in that it hadn't happened before within kind of the Sikh, um, the Sikh guru settle. It was actually just the fact that it, takes on a different meaning in the context of kind of the last decade of the 17th century because of the fact that the Sikh community would be left without a human guru after that?
1: Well, I mean, this is just one angle. You've come up okay. with and different others as well. But yeah, yeah. Th- there is definitely a lot of the research now that shows... And our pre uh, our scholars have said that as well. But there's a lot of research that shows that the earlier gurus had scholars surrounding their court as well. Nice. Obviously, the the most important example is by Gurdashti Yeah. Um, but we also had scholars that were looking into vidyas that dealt with how to basically govern yourselves as a as a community and as a people. Um, a couple of months ago, I was I was doing manuscript research. Uh, one of my followers contacted me and the. And, uh, opened up his um, his, um, his manuscript. Uh, what do you call it? Kajana or one of the manuscripts I saw was actually from a from a poet that had been uh, in the in the darbar of the ninth guru. Amazing.
0: Um, Amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was just saying that this is like one of the areas that we need to delve much more into.
0: Yeah. Um, Considering the fact that the gurus. <laughs> Okay, so the, the this question actually comes from me reading the other day. I can't remember what book it was, but um, it was it was it was basically analysing how the gurus use term like badshah, um and other terms of kind of royalty that were being used by the Mughals at the time. Um, and if anything, to me, what that indicates isn't a, a separate religious community. Although we are a separate religious community, just so I don't get. Um, gunned down uh but but more importantly uh doesn't it indicate actually that we were a separate political nation almost and and i use nation quite loosely there um but we were a separate kind of political entity from the get-go almost because as far as i'm concerned you can't have allegiance to the queen and an allegiance to your guru um king and st- state and religion for sikhs aren't separate ideals well i
1: mean this is one of the areas that my research is uh, looking into, um, I have a paper coming up, and because of COVID-19 it's been really, really delayed, but I have a yeah. publication coming out uh, that actually looks into these writings, Indian Darbar, in oh, what wow. way are they contributing into creating a distinct Sikh uh, political identity um, with their own ideas of govern, governance, sovereignty, and uh, so forth. Uh, obviously, utilizing the, the existing knowledge from the Mughals and the Sanskrit yeah. world, but also building upon on that to create something unique. Yeah, um, I hope. Yeah, COVID nineteen has delayed everything, in this world, <laughs> but hopefully, it'll be out in a couple of uh, in a couple of months. I look forward just, to just, it. Just, just, just quickly also because you said some some of the listeners might not know much about the Anand for bar, So let's just go like back to the basics. So what Gurdgobind Singh does is that um, from really early on in, in the uh, in his time of regency, uh, he 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 sends out Sikhs to the various intellectual centers of India um, Benares, Delhi Kashmir and so forth. He sends out Sikhs to these areas and asks them to bring back scholars and books that they come across. So basically invite people with knowledge into Anandpur. Um, So a lot of Sikhs were sent out to, um, to, to locate any book that contain knowledge that would be of benefit for the Sikhs. Um, and they, they basically just like mushroom all over northern India and probably even south. We need to yeah. find out that as well. And, and then they bring out, uh, sorry, they bring back these books to um, they bring back these books to Anandpur. And then you have this, what I call in my research, the uh, the central library of Anandpur. that's just being expanded, keeps growing, 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 because As the weeks goes on, the months and the years go on, more books are brought into the library, more scholars are arriving in Anandpur, and these scholars are teaching Sikhs, Vidya, so that new scholars are created. Through this and this is what, like, basically, what the Anantpur Darbar is, is about.
0: Just carrying on, then, from the Anantpur Darbar, um, typically and quite traditionally, the number 52 is associated with the number of poets that um, are connected to Guru Gobind Singh uh, court. However, I, I have read on uh, uh, in a couple of different places that that's just a number that has kind of been come to be accepted, um, and that. Kind of estimates for that number actually also go far beyond 52. Um, yeah. What What is your kind of understanding of that?
1: Nothing. I, I think this is like a traditional number that has been brought down to us by our poets, uh, later historians and poets, because okay. 52 has like a symbolic meaning in Indian culture. Yeah. Um, 52 places of this, 52 sadhus of that, 52 of this, uh, 52 letters of that alphabet and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so it's more like a symbolic number. Um, it's in Like in Danish, you always say like, uh, I've said this 117 times. It just means I've said it a lot of times. Not like literally. I said something 117 times.
0: I see what you mean. Um, Yeah, it's it's more kind of like a saying rather than it being literal.
1: Yeah, so the research shows that, and this is especially from Piara Singh, that there were at least a hundred scholars coming in and out of, and staying in Anandpur. Um, And apart from that, there were also about, again, symbolic number, about 36 calligraphers and copyists that were sitting there and copying the manuscripts of, of the Kavis.
0: So you're not—you're actually not kidding when you when you say the Nanakpur Dabad is literally crystallizing Sikh thought because they are pretty much copying, re- like they're essentially a printing press for knowledge of the time um, and a school of thought. So.
1: Basically, yeah, this is the start of it, and then obviously during the missile period and so forth, it's uh, kickstarted once again, and then yeah. it, it, it what do you call that? It, uh, it crystallizes and reaches its peak at the time of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. But all of these things can be traced back to the Anandpur Darbar and, and the missiles. Okay. And just just quickly, um, the later historians say that that when the Kavis arrived, uh, they had this mansion that was built for them where they would stay. Um, and in my research paper that's coming up hopefully in a few months I, 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 I tried to um, come up with some theories about this mansion like how did, what did it look like what did it contain and so forth uh, just like basically using Mughal architecture nice. as I a look, I look
0: forward for it. to it a lot I'm re- actually quite excited to read it. Um, mm-hmm. it sounds really good it's annoying like I know out of all of the things COVID-19 has done to the globe um it affecting your paper has to be kind of the the top of the pile for me so it's <laughs> a bit, bit irritating
1: um, um, so basically just like again for those listening that are new to this uh so in this in this uh, mansion hundreds if not thousands of writings were translated they were studied they were copied by the calligraphers and then they were stored in this uh, in this library and over time through the guru's agency came to comprise you can say a translation yeah. academy a library a book depository and obviously learning institutions because these uh, gurus were also teaching the Sikhs that came uh, just to have darshan of their guru
0: a lot of what your research brings to the to the front and it, it is extremely um, interesting it actually kind of breaks the traditional Not, it doesn't necessarily break, but it certainly pokes a hole in the traditional narrative that Sikhs are either kind of saints or soldiers, um, mm-hmm, yeah. and and particularly post kind of annexation of Punjab, uh, well, particularly post Guru Singh Ji and when the British start to arrive in India and and kind of imperialism goes under full swing you kind of see how the image of the sikhs very quickly goes from being rulers to rebels to really annoying kind of miscreants in a a land the british want to take over and then very suddenly post the the indian mutiny um sikhs are turned into this uh kind of ideal of protecting the British Raj or whatever. Um, And ever since, I don't think that narrative has ever left us. So even today, uh, you'll see, like, I think there's a statue going up in Wolverhampton of of Sikh soldiers. Now, I understand the sacrifice and, and, and have utmost respect for what they have gone and done. But I just think I find it interesting that there are only kind of two sides of a Sikh that get reprinted within kind of mass media one is either mm. we're feeding everybody or the other one is we're fighting in some capacity whether that's mm. in the british army or whatever it might be um yeah. and actually what your research points out is we were or kind of our ancestry and our gurus were some of the greatest intellectuals or at least some of the greatest thinkers of the time um mm-hmm. and appreciative of cultures traditions and philosophical thought that actually a lot of us probably aren't even aware of mm.
1: but you know the thing you're definitely it's true um we often have this tendency that we just blame the british for everything that yeah went wrong. It's, it's like uh, we also i think like what we need to do is also try to get a bit away from that mindset because in many people i see it's been ingrained because a lot of what you're talking about here um, I think a lot of listeners say well this has to do with like the martial races that the British created and blah 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 But even like if you look into our own sources and our own history This is kind of the narrative that comes out from our own tradition Like even just look at like, like we we're talking about before material uh, sources Like look at yeah. paintings right for instance of the gurus They're either uh, painted as warriors or they're painted as the sadhus In the literary books and writings Um Most of the things that we hear about, for instance, the 10th Guru or the 6th Guru, is the military battles they engaged in. This is like from the writings of the 1700s. Yeah. Um, The writing, like what we're talking about here, the the sources are quite scarce. Uh, It's really difficult to find much information about it, even though this was like 25 years the gurus spent engaging yeah, in yeah. this kind of activities so you can even like look at sikh history and say this is also the kind of narrative that was transmitted and there's a lot of reasons for that and we and I, I don't blame anyone for doing that because obviously the sikhs were persecuted minority they needed to portray the gurus as warriors to inspire the sikhs to stand up fight for themselves and so forth and um, so obviously there's a reason for that it makes 100% sense but Completely. I think you can even find these traces of saint soldiers within the Sikh so uh, transmitted history.
0: Yeah. I don't disagree with that. And actually, I had a very similar conversation with another. Uh individual a few months ago when I actually posted about the Sikh martial race theory and how I kind of think that we have been modelled into a particular image and and you're correct I don't disagree that within the Sikh tradition there is obviously a very distinct saint soldier tradition and that is something kind of we all abide by and kind of follow however I think there's a distinct difference between the saint soldier setup up within the Sikh framework and the 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 dichotomy in the image of a Sikh in a modern framework. And the reason being is is because the Sikh ideology is very much the soldier is someone who isn't fighting an imperialistic or an oppressive war. We're not invading your land to take your money or your women or whatever the case might be. And fundamentally, we're not fighting for someone else. Um, And I think that's quite... For, for me, I think that's quite pivotal. Whereas Sikh see, sovereignty comes from that very ability to actually be your own king or your own commander, whatever the word is you want to use. So mm. I, I agree. I think there are definitely parallels. And I think the... Brit- Again, I don't want to get into blaming the British as being kind of like the, the be-all and, and end-all. But I definitely think that not necessarily just the martial race theory, but also... Um, how Hmm. Sikhs in particular get manipulated. It's been divorced from the rest of the tradition. And I think that's actually what the problem is, because now you have so-called Sikh soldiers um, within the British army, for for argument's sake. um, And I think if you had a, a... And again, my my thought process gets challenged quite often so i was reading a book about Jussasengramgude and it turns out that his father was employed in the forces of Adina Beg Khan mm-hmm. that's Just, Singh himself then also took up employment no sorry um his father was in the employment of Zakaria Khan and him he Jussasengramgude was in the employment of Adina Beg Khan
1: the mobile, um, yeah. I think like the, the responsibility now for, for, especially Sikhs living in the Western world is yes. to, again, nuance this, like, like I said, painting life, right? We, we, all, we mostly portray Guru Gobind Singh as either a saint or a warrior, most specific, specifically a warrior. And we have so many artists in the Wests in America and the UK and so forth. It would be so cool if they could actually start depicting the guru as a scholar, surrounded by poets, surrounded by these intellectuals, engaging in debates uh, on philosophical matters and so forth, just to bring out this aspect of, of the Guru, um, so that we kind of bring out all these, and, and we enrich these narratives that we tell. Like I did a lot of manuscript research in the past year, and uh, it's one of the things I found most interesting is that sometimes you can see within the manuscript where it was written. So let's say like it was written in this bunga, like in the Sahib uh, yeah. area. It was written within this area. This, this manuscript was either copied here or composed here, or it was compiled in this taramsala uh, in so-and-so place. So it also shows that Gurdwaras weren't just like a place for uh, sadhus and these saints to sit in a bit and do their meditation and kirtan It was also a place where scholarly activities took place because this is like what you can see from these manuscripts because they were they weren't created in schools they were created in uh, Sikh places of worship basically
0: well I guess if anything what you're pointing out to is is that religion state whatever kind of demarcations that the West may make they don't they didn't exist within that pre- colonial setup that the Sikhs had so if you're saying that and and it's it's it's, it's not just you saying it there's, there's evidence across the board for this um that places like side weren't just religious institutions they were also institutions of thought of learning they were also institutions of feeding of housing kind of you name mm. it it did it yeah, even like um,
1: surgery from people and medicine and uh, yeah
0: yeah sweet okay um just Quickly going back to what we were speaking about earlier about Jassah Singh and, and his employment within um, the Mughal forces. The impetus for him joining the forces, from from what I've read so far, actually comes from him wanting to find out what the orders were that were coming from Meer Mannu, who was the governor of Punjab at the time. Um, when when you start reading into this you actually find out that Adina nabeg khan on initially getting the order from meed mannu actually didn't decide to persecute the sikhs um so it isn't as kind of black and white and you're like oh my god um but equally provide slightly more nuance to, to understanding why that may have happened um mm. i don't think i can necessarily make a direct comparison to then joining a, a modern military but just to just to make that comparison slightly less comparative, um, just wanted to throw that out.
1: True. So just going back to the Anandpur Dharbar, right? So while these scholars are arriving there, um, bringing their books, bringing their vidya, and all these sea scouts that were sent out to India to bring back books of knowledge, you, you start to see uh, a darbar where themes, various themes are discussed, we're talking about history, Uh, mythology obviously puts on india hagiography prosody and poetry writing a lot of these manuals are written on how to write good poetry um political theory uh zoology like books on on horses on uh, elephants on the falcons and so forth medicine books are also studied and translated and obviously uh, taught um yeah philosophy architecture geography Uh, Mysticism through the Upanishads and so forth, even like dictionaries, like what's the meaning of various words uh, in in different languages. And obviously, that can be used to taught new uh, scholars. Um, So, you see, like what I mean when I say, like, here you have a thriving intellectual community within a Sikh what do you call that? Sikh center of power. Yeah. Um, so this is not something that's done at a university or done like separately uh, in a school. This is done within what we today would call a Gurdwara setting.
0: So in actual fact, what you're pointing at is is we were in control of our own narrative. We were creating yeah. our own understanding and we were yeah. literally just re kind of engaging with it, working with it and and developing with it, essentially developing into whatever may, well, I guess what came after that really. Um, yeah. And just going back to your point about artists and and kind of depicting Guru Gobind Sinji in the light of perhaps a scholar. Um, mm. I think that's a brilliant idea. And also just, just one thing that I always find interesting um, about some of the modern depictions of, of, of some of the gurus. So a lot of the modern, and this is just a general um, observation. A lot of the portraits of Guru Nanak Dev Ji show him to be quite round. Um, mm-hmm. But Guru Nanak Dev like Ji yeah, from everything we are aware of, Guru Nanak Dev Ji did lots of traveling, lots of walking. Um, and if anything, he'd be very much not like that. Um, or or wouldn't look like that. Um, Mm. And I just find it interesting that a lot of, especially, I'm not talking about, when I say modern artists, I'm not talking about people kind of the last 10, 15 years, but like kind of the sobba things and the people like that. I just find it interesting when certain things are kind of added into the image or certain things are taken out of the image. Um, Mm. There was a really interesting paper I read about, there is a typical portrait of Guru Gobind Singh that is literally a carbon copy of a portrait of Napoleon.
1: But you know what, this is like one of my, one of my um, like I said before, like there's a lot of this idea that the British did everything wrong and did Soba Singh, he's a, from the modern period and so forth. I mean, what Soba Singh did just like challenge that uh, frame mind mindset, right? Because you, I hear it a lot from people that are following me on Instagram as well. It's very natural for artists to look at beautiful art be inspired by it and then create their own art on the basis of that and this is why you see like funny things like uh, Guru Gobind Singh Ji looking like Napoleon. Uh, I've seen that painting as well but, but like, this is not something that's like pre uh, post-British, post-annexation Punjab, Singh Sabha this and that as people usually say. If you look at the the, the images uh, from the 1700s from Kangara and so forth, um, the gurus are. Are modeled on the Mughal emperors. Yep. So, how is that any different from creating the guru as? And we sit here and praise these uh, paintings. paintings because yeah. they're so old, right? And yeah. and you can see the same thing with, with the gurus being depicted as, as like within Sufi. What, what's the what's the ideal Sufi saint? And then they make Guru Nanak look like that. So, I think it's very natural the way. Uh, so, saying, I'm not really. a uh, an expert on him, so but like the way he was inspired by beautiful art, he tried to model the gurus on that, it's very similar to what this. The, uh, the painters were doing uh, 50 years ago. The, the problem is just like because we're we're familiar with Napoleon, so we'd laugh at it and find it to be really funny and, and strange, but but because we're not familiar with necessarily the Mughal at Chile and the Mughal painters and why and how Mughal paintings were made. No,
0: correct. No, definitely. Um, I, I just think there's also a slight difference in that a lot of the imagery that the early paintings or older paintings may have used in terms of taking from Mughal or Sanskrit culture, I think that's challenging the sovereignty or if anything, actually showing that the gurus were sovereign.
1: But, but couldn't you add that kind of uh, reasoning to, to modern day paintings as well? Then?
0: So I think there's a difference between changing the image in terms of its historical uh, truthfulness and mm-hmm. adding your own artistic kind of license to it. And and I guess, yeah, you are right. It, actually, in mapping Guru Gobind Sinji on Napoleon, perhaps you're actually indicating that Guru Gobind Sinji was one of the best generals in the world. However, mm-hmm. I just think that there is... So put it like this. If you came second in a race, you're not the winner. So why are we putting... The guru as second in that sense. Actually, shouldn't we depict him in, like, shouldn't we come up with an a, a way of depicting him in a way that is true to, to uh, like, to that idea rather than mapping it on, say, Napoleon
1: this is the beauty of art because now we're sitting here discussing it and this is like the, the purpose of art that art, art in itself doesn't have any practical function it's not like a table where you can put items on there it's not like a the fact that we're sitting here talking about and discussing it both of us becoming more clever on the subject is yeah. the purpose of it and i w- like a counter-argument you could make was saying well why were the gurus modeled like in the early paintings why were they modeled onto the mughal emperors for instance when the mughal emperors caused the Mugh- caused the Sikh so much and uh, harm and, and misery. And you'll probably find a lot of modern-day Sikhs that will say, well, these ridic- these paintings are ridiculous. These are like yeah, copycats yeah. of Google's. That happens all the Let's time. Let's discard it. Let's discard it and just move on with it. But the fact is that we have to appreciate that. Yeah. And this this, this yeah. was actually quite a journey for me as well because I was quite conservative for many years. Like, everything after after the Sink sub period, I would reject. Even like their writers, by dancing, not and all that. But the fact is that they actually they're a part of our tradition. They have tremendous work, people can agree with or not, that has influenced the way we are today. So they take so much as a painter, for instance. People might like it, people might not like it. Like myself as well, like just rejecting it because it's, it's too modern or whatever. I think you're doing yourself a disfavor. And I did myself a disfavor.
0: But yeah, we could be here forever talking about that. I was about to
1: say, we're going really off topic, but it's it's uh, good to have
0: these conversations. No, definitely. One thing I wanted to ask you, with, um, and it's something that you mentioned quite a few times just in, in passing, is you talk a lot about social history. Um, can you just expand a little bit on what you mean by that? Um, and then also, can you expand on what it is you're looking for? So when you say social history, what like, what are you going and trying to find?
1: Mm-hmm. So, so most of Sikh history, the way it's been transmitted to us, has been what we could call military history or uh, political history. history. Yeah. This warrior, he conquered this area. This warrior went into this area, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of Sikh history as well, like the Gurus, it's about the battles they were engaged in and so forth, or like the political, uh, what can you say, the political uh, conflicts that they gave were, um, not conflict, like the political uh, dynamics of yep. India at the time with the Mughals and the Hari Rajas and so forth. Um, What I'm interested in is actually like the everyday to day life of the Sikhs. Like uh, the, the writings They were reading The discussions They were having Even like yeah. in terms of The Janamsakis They give a lot of information About what kind of conversations Were the gurus having With their Sikhs What questions Were they asking The gurus yeah. And so forth Okay.
0: Um,
1: and like Like I said With Anandpur Darbar As well This is social history Because this yeah. is like What kind of literature Were they studying And so forth All This right. is like Mostly my area of research nice. When it comes to the Even like when it comes To political Sikhish Like the Maharajas And singh period And the Missal I'm not really interested in like the battles they were having the, the areas they were conquering Yeah, I'm more interested in after they had conquered Kashmir for instance how did Sikh rule make any changes for the Kashmiris in what way were their lives improved in what way
0: nice. like
1: what we we're talking about before commissioning paintings commissioning uh, literature and so yeah. forth this is what I'm interested in and unfortunately there's not really much on that there is a lot but we need to uncover it okay it, it's, it's in the Sikh Kajana but we just need to find it
0: Okay, nice. That sounds really good. Just to kind of summarize it, would you say, and I guess for everyone listening as well, would you say a lot of history or or majority of Sikh history is actually the history of what one of my lecturers would call great people in terms of it's based on those kind of really prominent figures that come to the forefront either because of they're the guru or because they've played a very particular historical role. So either that's militarily, politically or whatever. And in fact, the history you're looking at is the history of just everyday people, kind of what they were doing, the culture they were consumed in, kind of the the things they were talking about and, and so on
1: exactly yeah that's a good way uh, the history of great people here. Yeah.
0: because in a sense social history is also looking at military and and political history but within that wider mm. framework of how does it impact or change society so okay so
1: for instance this is this has nothing to do with see this is like the, the general like you know from the historical background this is just the way history has been written all over the world right yeah and there's a lot of uh, female scholars now coming out trying to bring out the the females of Sikh history, yeah. for instance, yeah. and one of the things, that, one of the struggles that they have, which all I think all historians have, is that there is not that re- there's not that many females to to analyze. Uh, because the history that has been recorded were mostly the, the females that were either in military positions or in political positions.
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right.
1: And obviously there are there are many, but obviously um, they need to be uh, what do you call it, highlighted more. A lot of scholars are looking if you see female history, they will find um, military leaders, political leaders, maharani's, people in, in, in the palaces of of the, of the whole empire and so forth. But what I'm interested in is the females in the villages of Punjab that were teaching kids Gurmukhi in the Taram Salas, in the Gurdwara, the females on the ground level. There's not much information about that. Where do I find that?
0: Okay. There is a particular question that um, a user actually sent in that relates to the Anantabha Drabar that I just wanted to propose to you. So when you're researching all of these different manuscripts or sources or whatever it is that you might come across, how do you figure out that obviously, I'm sure in certain cases it's literally written there, so a signature or, or a date <laughs> or something. Um, um, but uh, but w- twofold. So how do you figure out where it's come from, what year it is, who wrote it, and that kind of information? And then how do you verify that? It's
1: a really good question, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I have the answer for it. I have some ideas. Um, so one of them is basically to have a, to have a, a, a ground or a thorough knowledge about. The various poets That were in the non Darbar, Like just basically Memorizing their names Right Yeah So sometimes On Instagram Especially in the last year A lot of people have Sent me like images Of Bhutan Manuscripts in their possession and they're like What is this My grandfather gave me this Or he brought it From England 60 years ago uh, From India yeah. 60 years ago Whatever yeah. uh, We just had it uh, Kept uh, in a Ramal And we never really looked at it. Can you help us find out And then I look at it I'm not sure what text it is But then I can see the name uh, Of the author mentioned and i'm like ah oh, i remember that name because he was one of the court poets and then from there on i can start looking into well this court poet what did he write what what Punjab digital library do we have anything similar from this guy and this poet and so on and so forth that's like one way right yeah sometimes another guy he sent me a, another of my followers he sent me a, he sent me a text it was kind of a yoga text He was asking me what, it. I'm not really sure, he sent me a few images. I think it's kind of a yoga text, uh, but I need to do more research on it. But it had Hidusme at the front of it. Oh, wow. I was like, hmm, this is interesting. What is this? And I've never seen this text before, right? Yeah. Um, But it has Hidusme on it. So I'm thinking this must, it, it might be, if it's not a forgery, it might be from a court poet of the Guru's. Uh, of the 10th Guru, yeah. um, writing this yoga text within the court of Anandpur. I'm not sure, but I need to look more into it. But That's amazing. again, it just gives you these little clues that yeah. this might be from this or that period. And then when it's really easy, it gives you a date and even maybe mentions Kukubazindi uh, as the patron.
0: Then obviously, you know, it's, uh, it's from the Anandpur Darbar. So two questions just from what you've said. First one is when you say, Goming Singh patronized it. In that situation, would Goming Singh literally have paid the individual or provided something in return for that individual service?
1: Yeah. So we know, again, from the the sources that have been transmitted to us, we know that the guru paid the, the poets quite extensively. Wow. Um, and some modern historians, I think it's Tere even says that the the poet scholars were paid more money. Uh, than
0: the soldiers in his armies. Nice. So I think the (laughs) Gurdwaras need to start funding PhDs, if anything. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) All right. And then another thing you mentioned was forgeries. Have you come across any forgeries? And how do you... Well, obviously, there's certain cases where you could perhaps, I don't know, date the paper or date the ink used. But how do you verify if it's a forgery or not?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. Uh, I haven't myself come across anything I would consider to be a forgery so I wouldn't know like all this stuff about uh, dating the paper obviously that requires a lot of money but even then it doesn't necessarily mean like because a lot of a lot of the manuscripts we have from the from the Guru's Darbar today are actually later copies of it so, so they, these copies were made at a time when the Sikhs had become more affluent like during the Mistle period or the uh, non, uh, Sorry, uh, Ranjit Singh period yeah so like I've examined some manuscripts I've, I've examined many uh um, manuscripts pertaining to the Nanpur Darbar. But I'm not sure these are actually from the time of woman Singh. I'm pretty sure they're from the time of Maharana al Singh and so forth.
0: I see what you're saying. Okay. Um. All right, just going back to the Nanpur Darbar, and before we kind of, I, I guess, delve further into it and the early Missile period, another question sent in by a user was, so, Bhai Nandala is often associated as one of the most famous court poets of Guru Gobind Singh The user asked that he's heard you mentioned prior that Bhai Nandala didn't take Amrit. Why not? Um, and was this the case for any other prominent Sikhs?
1: Yeah, so this is like one of those controversial questions uh, that arises, especially today because we have so much identity politics going on. Yep. Um, So one of the major things is that there's a lot of great Sikhs from the time of the Gurus that we honour today. Uh, Bainandalal, a good example, we honour his Bani, his his writings, we even call it Bani, right? Um, And it's recited, it's sung as Girtan and so forth. But look at his name, Bainandalal or Bainandalal Goya. There's no sing in it, right? No. So does this mean that Bainandalal never took Amrit? Um, some historians will say yeah, he never took Amrit, and others will say no, he, he did say he just kept his old name. Uh, Baikanea is another example, It's never called Paikaniya Singh. Yeah, and there's uh, like that- tons of these examples, so it's just again, it shows a very fluid world in the time of Guru Gobind Singh that's not just separated between the Amritadis and the non ambritadis or yeah. the Khalsa and the non Khalsa. Yeah, it, it's a much more fluid world, um, Completely. where a lot of people. Uh, that are not necessarily Khalsa Amritaris are still put into high positions of power and they're like local community leaders even of Khalsa Sundats and so forth yeah Um, so just another um, so there's a later tradition but I've only the latest or the earliest source I've seen is like from the 1970s so it's quite recent right yeah Um, but it's from I think it's Biara Singh who mentions it he gives this example um, where by nan, where the Guru gives out a call and says that all Sikhs should come fully armed uh, and get ready for, to take Amrit. And by Nandalal, he shows up, uh, heeding the call of the Guru. And then the Guru says to him something along the lines of, remove your sword, here is a reed pen, and I'll give you Amrit of that reed pen. I'm not sure it's like a modern, popular uh, narrative or it actually has origins in the but Bjarat Singh is quite a, I would say, quite a faithful, quite a, a trustworthy author. So I'm pretty sure it must have come from an early manuscript of his. People like you and me, we find history so important because like, it's such an interesting world to dive into.
0: Just further diving into the Nantibut that I would love to know what has been some of the most interesting things that you've come across
1: so my research has, if we drag it on to a contemporary um, context, right? we can see that the Guru, the, the writings that he's commissioning poets to translate and then discuss with the Sikhs, just to name drop a few, it's the Upanishads that deals with mysticism, there's the Chinakya's Rajiniti, there's the Hitopadesha, the Mahabharata, the Puranas, Ayurveda and so forth. And, and what we're talking about here is... Um, Let's talk about the categories. Leave out the names, but let's just talk about the categories. We're talking about spiritualism. We're talking about politics and economy. We're talking about governance, medicine, uh, cultural and national history. Yeah. So this is what the Guru is bringing into Sikh centers of power and having them discussed. Now, if we're, this made sense because the Nanpur darbar was in India. So their point of reference is would obviously be these Sanskrit and Persian yeah, writings, right? completely. You and me, for instance, we're in the West. So for us to understand the world around us, taking the example of the Nanpur darbar that would be, for me at least, the equivalent of sitting in a Gurdwara, studying the writings of Machiavelli, Yep. In terms of political thinking, Yeah, uh, Martin Luther, in terms of secularism, yeah. uh, Foucault, Rousseau, Aristotle, Adam Smith, in terms of economical theory, yeah. even like Shakespeare, because that's like cultural history, uh, as I talked about. And for yeah. me, that's that's like what we should make of it. That the trying to make his Sikhs engage in the world they're in, understanding the references that a wider society uses, trying to challenge that maybe, or even like appropriate it, or whatever you want to do with it. Hmm. Just dive into it and bask in it.
0: Yeah, develop our own understanding narrative, political systems, whatever it might be, from actually understanding the wider context. Yeah, completely. Um,
1: exactly. So I, even like the quick example, like my research has mostly just been centered on the political formation in the anandpur yeah. What the Sikhs are doing is that they're taking the Mughal system of governance and then they're adding a Sikh ethos to it and presenting it to the world in a new book, right?
0: Yeah,
1: We're living in the Western world, the system here is democracy. So the equivalent would be to take this democratic system, adding a Sikh ethos to it and present that to the wider world and say, here's a better system that is actually built on what you already believe in.
0: I have to admit, Western philosophical thought is a very mundane and dry and very, very, (laughs) like... kind of it's because it's all very much based on logic reason and anything that you can only verify empirically it is it's divorce of all of that mysticism and experiential based spirituality that Sikhi is just completely just drowned in but it does get you thinking and and you're right we can't necessarily improve or create our own institutions or whatever it might be without actually understanding the wider framework that we're 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 actually dealing with mm. how far you can take that in the modern setting i don't know um i'm sure that's a, a conversation for another podcast um mm-hmm. is there anything else that you'd like to talk about in relation to non or shall we move on to the early missile period Yes,
1: so, um, so just some quick history. Um, so what happens in 1704 is that the Mughals and the, the Pahari Rajas, they destroy Anandpur. Uh, they kill a lot of the poets and a lot of the poets flee from Anandpur. Um, and basically they try to destroy this political civilization and that Guru Gobind Singh created, right? So it's quite dispersed. A lot of them... They, they flee into other parts of India and, and, the, and the traditions basically just continue more decentralized rather than yeah. being in an And then, as most of you know, Sikh history for the next about 50 years is it's mostly political history, it's military history, it's yep. the missiles that are trying to fight for their survival. Yeah. We get to 17, 1765 uh, and that's the year where the Sikhs um, Declare their independence. Uh, they take Lahore, uh, which was the previous Mughal capital. They take Lahore and make it the capital of, of the Sikh uh, Khalsa Raj, you can say.
0: Yeah. Um, um, just for everyone listening, could you perhaps mention the particular individuals who conquered Lahore?
1: Oh, yes, that's a good question. It's three different three different missiles. One of them is the Pungis. The other one is the... Oh, I can't remember who the other ones are. Uh, Jassassin Aluwali is one of them I'm not sure about the other one
0: though For some reason I want to say Jassassin Ramgariya But I also feel like that's just me wanting to say that Because I was reading a book about it <laughs> yesterday So don't take my word for it <laughs> um,
1: Yeah, but it was a combined Sikh force basically. Okay. Yeah
0: And just to um, add a little bit further context Those Sikh forces, although united at this point Actually also on numerous occasions were fighting amongst themselves Mm, yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. So what we do is that, especially in popular history, is that we kind of say, all right, the Guru's you know, Anandpur is destroyed. There's uh, Guru Granth society becomes the next Guru. And then what happens later on is kind of divorced from, from the Guru period, right? Yeah. Um, and, and what happens in the missile period is kind of divorced from the Maharaja Singh period. Uh, this is like the stuff I'm trying to challenge in my in my research, basically saying that the reason the missiles were fighting was because of the political education that they had received in the anandpur with the political theories and all this stuff that were brought into the Sikh nice. minds and society.
0: Nice, I see what you're saying.
1: Otherwise, why would the Sikhs, uh, being just humble, uh, what do you call that, nomadic kind of people, why would they take on some of the world's most powerful empires at the time, those the Afghans. It, it, makes, it makes zero sense. It would be akin to the Sikhs of Europe being as dispersed as we are. That would be equivalent of us taking on NATO, taking on America, taking on the Russian Empire. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 that's, yeah.
1: That's what the Sikhs were doing. But they had been through a political education for 25 years. And it, was, it has just stuck to them that one day we will rule because Rajagarika Khalsa was one of their slogans that the Guru had imported into their minds, right? So basically, I'm just trying to like bridge these things together and saying what we see with the missiles is a direct consequence of the Anandpur Darbar. And what we see with Maharaj these things is direct consequence of the missiles. Um, Because again, one of the things I'm trying to challenge is this popular narrative that the missile period is basically just civil war in Punjab complete chaos, and then Maharaja Jirajit Singh comes on board, and lo and behold, he creates peace, and the Sikh empire lasts for 50 years.
0: No, you're correct on that. The, the, the narrative is definitely far more nuanced than, than that is, yeah.
1: And this is like, the. Um, I'm writing another paper uh, that's basically where I argue for this case, why they're connected and, and so forth, and this is why yes. I say the next golden era is not, for the Sikhs, it's not uh, Maharaja Jirajit Singh's era, that's like the pinnacle of it but yeah. it begins with the missiles, with, yes. with, with the political stability they create and the social stability they create in Punjab, not, war, not warfare and civil war but actually political and social stability. Um, so we have to remember, just paint paint the larger picture, and then I'll dive into the, uh, the specific missile period, right? So for the Sikhs that are fighting for the creation of the Khalsa Raj, there is this trinity of thought that you see in all the sources. One is the nation, the Panth, right? The other one is religion, uh, Sikhi. And the third one is the sacred land of Punjab. There's no doubt they're fighting for Punjab specifically. They're not going for Kashmir, they're not going for South India. They want Punjab, right? Okay. At the, at the pinnacle of their power, the Sikhs are minority rulers that are ruling over Punjabis, Sindhis, Pashtuns, Baluchis, Tajikis, Kashmiris, and even Tipitans. Yep. The population, we don't really necessarily know how large it was, but it's roughly about 12 to 15 million people. That's a lot of people uh, back then. Take the Ottoman Empire, for instance, one of the largest empires in the world at the time. The Ottoman Empire population was only about 25 to 30 million people. Okay. So the Sikh empire, though being much shorter, were almost ruling over the same amount of And while the uh, the capital of the Sikhs was obviously in Lahore, for the Missiles as well as for the Maharaj of the Eastern period, the heart of the Raj was Amritsar. But it was very... Multicultural in the sense that if in the northern Khalsa territories, it was mostly Buddhists that were living there. And, and people were ethnically Tibetan. If you went to the um, the western territory of the Khalsa Raj, the people were Bashtuns, Afghans. Yeah. And obviously Muslim, right? you went to the south, they would be Sufis. It would be like Multan and so forth. A lot of Sufi shrines are there. Um, it, was, it was primarily a Muslim-dominated area. And obviously, if you went to the east and uh, northeast, you have, you have Gandhara, you had all these ancient Hindu uh, areas, Kurukshetra and so forth. So you can see like the Sikhs were mostly in the middle, in the, in the area around Lahore and Amritsar. And they were, they were ruling over a majority of people that had different religions, different languages, and different cultures, right? So this was also new for the people of Punjab. The narrative that we often get is that as soon as the Sikhs have taken over Punjab, they just start going for each other. Like yeah. All scores have to be settled. So yeah, yeah. Waging wars against each other. And that, <sighs> obviously, that did happen. I wouldn't say it was wars. I would say it was like minor battles and skirmishes.
0: Yeah, I think you're correct. It's definitely not all out bloodbath war. To throw in a bit of a context to this, just us mm-hmm. saying Ramgiri and just us saying Aluvalia fought together on numerous. Uh, in numerous battles on the same side they also had numerous skirmishes between themselves and there was actually one instance when I think just Singh shot just Aluvalia through the arm and yet they were still comrades, friends whatever the words you want <laughs> to use That like there was still that Kind of, baguette. yeah, yeah. There was still that. You know <laughs> what? There is a greater entity than just our personal beef, so to speak. So you're definitely correct. It is far more nuanced than that popular mm. idea of history that that's normally told.
1: And and the reason I know that we're not talking about a full out bloodbath civil war for 30 years until Maharaj and Singh comes on board and saves the scene mm. is because you can see that the contemporary travelers in the area. They're describing a Punjab under Sikh rule, where trade, trade is flourishing. Uh, new research that we see now shows that painters were coming to Punjab, uh, paintings were being done, and so forth. And obviously, trade, arts, literature, and so forth, that does not happen in a, in a place of civil war. Even like in my manuscript work, the, the work that I've been doing, I can see that some of them are actually dated to the early missile period missile period and this does not make sense if Punjab was a was a, yeah. a bloodbath and a civil war at the time so because again people like traders people like artists writers and so forth they will go seek out stable uh, territories where there is room for patronage, where, you know, like there are people that appreciate art yeah. and are willing to pay you for it, right? Not people that have to spend all their money on military uh, equipment, but they actually have leftover money to actually patron artists
0: no understood okay, okay.
1: And, and there's so many interesting and you're doing research on this yourself like how the british people uh, how the british traveler germans were describing yeah um, the missile territories and you can find like many quotes where they talk about um where you can talk about uh, the sikh governance in uh, like there's one here from William Franklin, he says, The Sikhs in the interior parts of their country preserve good order and a regular government. In, in the Sikh territories, is another quote from the 1790s, In the Sikh territories, there exists much less cause for oppression than in many of the neighboring states. <laughs> so Obviously, you're, we're talking about people that are not just like sitting there desperately grabbing, holding on to power by oppressing people like you see in Syria at the moment, right? With mm-hmm. Assad. These are people that say, we have power, let people flourish as they want. Just a last quote from, yeah, the, from the missile period, just after the Sikhs had taken over Delhi, right? Um, this is in Punjab. We know but little concerning the state of their government and politics, but the government is represented as being mild.
0: You're completely correct. And you actually reminded me of a quote that I came across. Hold on, I'm just going to see if I can... Okay, so Jassar Singh in 1794 sent the following communication to the English Governor-General. This is around 1796. It's actually referred to as well in Gurinder Mahan's new book, which is based on the Sikhs and the British. But this, this letter is actually from a different book. It says, Since the time that I heard the great and praiseworthy qualities that the English are celebrated for among all ranks of people, it was my design to have set on foot a friendly intercourse by letters with Mr Lumsden, who was the British resident with the Nawab of all that Lucknow, The news of your arrival has afforded me extreme satisfaction." And then he continues. Mm. Lately, the Afghans framing empty schemes of ambition in their minds, repaired towards Hindustan and reached Lahore. Although those young upstarts, not knowing when they were well, did not endeavour to maintain their footing. Yet immediately on this event, the Saji or prepared to oppose them, And no sooner had the Prince of Kabul himself but a youth arrived at Lahore than believing himself devoted to destruction if he stayed, he immediately retreated. If a system of mutual cooperation were adopted, it is certain that his expulsion would not require any great exertion of our joint endeavours. All these points will be further made known to you by the representations of Rao Ghassi Singh. I request you will communicate to me what your inclinations may suggest. I think this letter just helps reinforce what you're saying, which is a lot of systems, the, the networks, whatever you want to call it, that Marajan Jitsingji is most famed for using or manipulating, but it was already kind of being set up or being kind of formulated before him. Exactly. Um, and, and just his reply, just to provide what the governor general wrote back, uh, 7th of April, 1797... What you have written on the subject of Zaman Shah is a proof of your foresight and wisdom. I learned that the Shah has been obliged to march his army towards Kandahar and that there is little probability that he will be enabled to return to Lahore. But if you should have an intelligence of a different tenor, I trust you will acquaint with me uh, that whatever prudence may suggest may be performed. In actuality, just as saying Ramgir, even before the British were... Uh, threatening to annex Punjab was communicating with the British um, and mm. actually was trying to create a friendly alliance so that they didn't use invading Punjab sorry, they didn't use the invasion from the Afghans as the excuse to mm. basically conquer and annex Punjab. Bingo, yeah. So, again, that foresight, the understanding is brilliant. Yeah,
1: exactly. And this also comes to show that like, we're talking about... Punjab here was not just civil war uh, until Maharani Adjee Singh comes on board, but actually we're talking about states, like nation-states within... Punjab that are dealing with diplomacy with foreign rulers in the foreign world and obviously internally building up uh, what we today call public institutions, public welfare uh, and so forth, social services and so forth. Yeah, definitely. And, and with this political stability and with this social stability, we saw the flourishing of trade, of arts of uh, and all these things that we normally uh, consider consider Maharaj to Singh to have brought on board. Let me just give you some other examples for instance.
0: Please.
1: Um, so there's another major uh, in 1776. So this is uh, like 10 years after the Sikhs have taken Lahore. He writes that the Sikh possessions, they're exceedingly well cultivated, populous and rich. You further So again, how can an area be rich if we're dealing with civil war, right? Yeah. In short, he writes a conclusion. Few countries can vibe with theirs. Few countries can compete with theirs, particularly <laughs> in this part of India. So the, the missile leaders, is just us in Al-Wahli, and all these different ones. They were creating and carving out states full-fledged states that even had embassies uh, in, in the other kingdoms of India across India
0: well just asking of alia's kingdom became the, the, the state of Kapurthalat so yeah, yeah you're exactly. correct in, in, in that they exactly. were literally setting up polity
1: so another thing that you talked about the Rakhi system before right yeah so there's another so sometimes you think these are like bully like the teachers is bullying people saying taking yeah. their money this is like the impression that you get it's kind you, of like
0: the American Mafia turning up to your <laughs> shop and like asking for for uh, for a pay to, to, to give you protection. To leave you right? alone. Yeah. yeah, yeah
1: to leave yeah. you alone. Now, there's another quote by James Reynolds in 1788, and he talks about the Iraqi system, right? Uh. Uh, he he talks about how the Sikhs have extended their territories to the southeast into towards Delhi, um, and then he says. The zamindars, so these are like the landowners, like the the people um, having all this land and Mm. selling the land and so forth. He says, the, the, the zamindars of that country, of these new areas that they're conquering they may have it convenient to place themselves under the protection of the Sikhs in order to avoid the more oppressive governments of their former masters. So there is this element of liberation as well, like big, big foot there, right? Protect yeah. people. So the Sikhs went into these areas that were highly taxed. So they say, all right, you to pay 50% tax to the owners. We'll take 20 from you, maybe 30, and then we'll protect you. And this was a win-win situation for everyone both mm-hmm. for the Zamindas because it gave them social stability to grow their land and they yep. weren't being harassed and also for the Sikhs because it gave them more money to build up their new uh, kingdom right and these are like some of the things I want to challenge with my research on the missile period because I think I'm not sure why but it's really been a uh, what do you call that bastardized? Making it sound yes. like these are like hillbillies going for the their throats of their Sikh <laughs> brothers. And
0: <laughs> I don't. I'd never expected to hear the term hillbilly in a conversation regarding Sikh history. But no, Let, you're let's right.
1: Talk, let's talk about trade, right? Now we're yeah. just going on it. Um, because trade again is the symbol of. This is like the, the main symbol of stability is that you have trade in that yeah. area. Yeah. Because traders will not go into an area where there's. You can't sell your goods, and there's um, there's no security, right? Mm. So, the same major polier he writes in seventeen seventy six. So this is ten years after they've taken the war. Yeah. He talks about merchants in all. Like, so the merchants back then were like traveling all over Afghanistan, India, current day Pakistan, just selling whatever goods they had, right? And obviously, if there was war in one area, they would obviously just divert that and go to somewhere else. Yeah. He writes. Merchants of every nation or sect who may introduce traffic into the Sikh territories or are already established under the government. These ones, they experience a full protection and enjoy commercial privileges in common with their own subjects. So another one is by George Campbell. this, was, this is a late source, this is like the late 1800s, so this is the British colonial period. Um, yeah. But he wrote, we're he talking about the missile period, he said they were not ex- the Sikhs, the missiles, were not exclusive and prejudiced in favour of their own people, but they employed capable Mohammedan and other almost as freely as Sikhs.
0: And again, that just goes to indicate that Ma'ar Singh's empire wasn't something that kind of fell out of the sky in its appreciation or its, its ability to work with other people, exactly. whatever you want to call it. Um, and, because this yeah. is what
1: we credit him for. We had a Muslim foreign ministry, had this and that. No, no, he had inherited a structure from the missiles and he just built upon that and continued that. It was, it was already in place. Even like Justice Singh Aluwali, we always say Maharaj Singh, he put gold on the Haramandar uh, right? Uh, Justice Singh Aluwali in the missile period, he was giving money to to, to put gold on Gurdwaras.
0: He inherited the entire system. And
1: he took it to the next level and he, he, he uh, completed it. And But it, we just have to be, like I said, we have to honor your teachers, right? We have yes. to honor the missiles, not just for the military exploits, but also for the cultural and the... And they history.
0: built the foundations that Maaza and Jitsingji then continue to build upon. We're not just challenging the narrative, but we're also providing the a fuller better narrative that actually explains it in a in a in a far more um detailed manner
1: and also like what we can see is that uh, just to build upon that um because like you say we're ch- we're challenging an old popular narrative and we're trying to nuance it or replace it where people you want to use with a, with a different one which i would say has more credibility in terms yes. of the the sources from the time right so we're not trying to whitewash history obviously the sikhs they did wage uh, battles against each other. The problem is just that these were minor skirmishes that may have lasted one or two days, three days, and then after that, yeah. it was just business as usual. Yeah. Open job. Yeah. Traders were trading. The writers were writing. The painters were painting. And, and now, like you can see it in the in the various in the, in the various auction houses, you always put on these paintings, and you always write like this was from so and so auction house, sold for that amount of money. You know, a lot of these paintings are actually from the Misk period yeah so again like now these paintings are starting to come to light that we can actually materially see the the outputs of of the stability that was created by the missiles
0: no definitely it's also a bit kind of bittersweet when when um when when I share those type of images because you're kind of like, well, I wonder how that ended up at that au- auction house. Um, mm-hmm. And then secondly, it's a bit of an annoyance because it's normally selling for like, I don't know, anywhere above two, three, four thousand pounds.
1: So, so uh, now we're talking about these things. Um, so what the Sikh missiles also did? This is something we always credit Maharaja and Jisim for. But what the missiles did, what, when, as soon as they took over, so like when they took over Punjab, right? Yeah. They wanted to cause as little disruption to the everyday life of the Muslims and the Hindus. Yeah. So what they did was that they started to continue the state funding or even begin state funding of Muslim schools and Hindu schools so that they could continue getting educated and whatever they wanted to, to do with the state funding, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of examples of... Uh, of these aluwal and all these, giving money to, to, to a specific Muslim school or a specific Hindu Darum Salah and so forth, um, in, in order also to create what we today would call community cohesion, right? So that they didn't feel like these Sikhs who have just taken over power, they're like they're not from us. We would just have to sit there and, and settle with these uh, infidels ruling over us. No, no, they were actually given a share in the power, in the economy of the area. Uh, so it was more like a state for all, for rather than just being a Punjabi state. Would you
0: perhaps argue that in a sense it was actually, when I say secular, I don't mean it was devoid of religion, but secular in the sense that it didn't impose religious differences upon different communities?
1: Uh, yeah. I hate the word secularism, but you could say in a sense, yeah, yeah. just to I make do. it, yeah. yeah. But like from a Sikh perspective, this was not like a secular, secular constitutional system. For, I think from a Sikh perspective, this is what you do. You you, you support the people, you patron their institutions, yep. whatever they have. So this yep. is like fully in line with key. It's not a diversion of Sikh thought. But at the same time, the Sikhs, when it came to government funding, the state funding, most of the money, disproportionately did go to Sikhs, to the Udasis, the Nirmalas, the Betis, the Surdis, the Rababis. They were the major recipients of state funding, way above their like per- percentage in the population. Yeah. And um, So this is again why I say this is a golden era for Sikhs, because now all these institutions that were living off Sangat money, all of a sudden they got these money from the Sikh kingdoms instead.
0: I see. It's from the top down rather than from the bottom up.
1: Bingo. This is why I say this is a golden era. for Because these same institutions that were suddenly, they didn't have to worry about continuation or survival or begging money from the Sangha. They, they just got the money every month or whatever from, from the rulers. They could crystallize later on into what we saw with the bungays and all that stuff at the time of Maharaja and Diching. So I was examining a manuscript recently that yeah. said it was written within uh, the uh, what do you call it the pressings of the Harmandar Sarovar right it says at the at the, at the banks of the pool it, this book was written here so it shows that this is from the early Missile period so yeah. this shows that the scholars were coming to Amritsar. because suddenly peace had erupted in, the, in Punjab scholars were coming there suddenly you can see that The Sikh rulers are giving money to these groups. They end up building the bungas. And recently, I was examining a manuscript that had been written in one of these bungas. It even mentions the name of the Bunga where this book nice. was compiled. This is like 50, 60 years later, right? But you can see like, what I'm trying to say. like, It shows how the patronage of the missile rulers started creating institutions that later on gave us writings,
0: poets, art. That we so appreciate forth. today. Yeah, definitely. I also think one of the most important things that has come out from the stuff we've been talking about and in particular the research that you're doing is that Sikhi wasn't divorced through a Western lens. And what I mean by that is like religion, state, uh, political theory, economics. Economical theory. Yeah, Yeah, kind of all of that was actually just part and parcel of. Of Tadam. Yeah, yeah, of just Tadam, of Tiki, whatever it is that you want to label it. And I think what's brilliant and what's quite beautiful in the work that you're doing is is that A, you obviously have a greater understanding and appreciation of that, but equally you're, you're bringing that you're bringing that narrative out to everyone else as well. So although like so what I mean by that is you know how kind of at the beginning of the conversation we were talking about bias you're the right person for the role because your understanding well, you. of that isn't biased in one way or another. And equally, I think that understanding is is quite brilliant because then the information in the narrative that you're providing, particularly in the papers that hopefully will be published soon, isn't only just challenging the narrative, but it's actually giving us a far more fleshier, a meatier narrative where you're like, that's actually our history that's our ancestry um and i'm sure a lot of people listening and perhaps like yourself a lot of a lot of the reasons for why we look at history is often to figure out where we fit in and, and again that popular narrative that you have this kind of bloodbath missile period mada jiji comes kind of divinely just appears somewhere and we have this great seat kingdom um it, it, it's brilliant to see that we're, we're we're challenging those those kind of popular narratives that are actually also quite false and do us more of a disservice than they do us a service it's brilliant to have these type of conversations like this was the entire reason for this podcast so yeah like Thank I think cannot... of those kind of words before no no not a problem Th- that that's just my kind of perspective from just the conversation we've had today
1: just to wrapping up one of the things I want as well is I want to. You can see that on my Instagram as well. I want to put out content that inspires people that like yes. shows like how great things were. And we are actually the, 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 legacy carriers of that legacy. So we can do that as well. Um, when I came into Sikki and when I started doing all the research, my, my, I would say my focus and mindset was negative. Everything has been tangled with all the things about everything's been ruined. Everything, this, everything, that oh, <laughs> poor us, the British did this to too. Or they did that. Uh, and now we just have like a mini school aspect of what we, of the great glory that we used to have. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of over that period now. I think it's a bit tiresome uh, and demotivating to, to be in that mindset. What I want to do instead is instead of talking about what I'm against, I want to promote what I'm for. Yes, and This is like the kind of, uh, this is the kind of approach I want to take and hopefully I am taking
0: there's a lot of parallels in what you're saying because, again, when I started a lot of my initial research, um, and in fact, you you interviewed me for some of the research you were doing I at did, that point. Thank you for that. Yeah, two yeah, years yeah. Ago, yeah, And again, I'm sure actually, if you, it'd be interesting to to, to look back at that interview and, and and what you wrote about it. But just just drawing parallels, same kind of thing where you. <laughs> I think for a lot of Sikh youth, you you kind of enter into Sikh history through one or two ways. One is either 1984 or you go get into Sikh history through kind of um, uh, colonialism and the British Empire and that stuff. With both, it's very easy to take the usual narrative and just kind of run with it and kind of just accept that um and i think what you what we've seen recently not just with kind of 1984 but also with wider Sikh history is people are taking far more time and nuance to really understand what is going on what's happening and actually taking control of the narrative so Mm. just just in reference to 1984 just to just a quick one which is paver singh's book 1984. it's probably one of the first texts that i've come across that combines quite categorically all of the what I would say is the counter narrative to the government and to the media's mm. story which mm. we all know. And and again I think it's a similar thing which which we're seeing with, with people like yourself and, and with loads of other historians and researchers.
1: Yeah but even like I said, yeah like I said before, like in the last year a lot of people have approached me with their manuscripts and coins and this and then asking me for for help. And for me, I'm oh. I'm actually the one being thankful to them because it gives me a, a completely different view on the material legacy and heritage of Sikhs, you know, like I had to come change some of my conclusions as well with the stuff that people presented to me. And one thing I find really fascinating um, is that a lot of the people that follow me, for instance. they're not like the the age of you and me and we're talking about people that are 19 20 21 and for them to be introduced to these kinds of discussions they're following you they're following all these different groups and the Sikh archives and so forth to be introduced to all these things things and i mean for them this will radiate with them for the next what 20 years and they will come up with 10 times even greater stuff than we have done in the past 50 years completely because in the beginning i was like oh there's a lot of Twenty-year-olds, twenty-one-year-olds that are following me—I thought it was <laughs> strange because I mean, they don't even find my stuff interesting because yeah. it's so new to them. But now I actually really appreciate it that they're so young because it, it can help them dive into this uh,
0: later on. Just drawing personal parallels, I actually remember, and it's it's burned into my memory. Actually, uh, the the Sikh Society lecture that I attended during my first year at university, and I just sat there and I went god this is terrible <laughs> and still to this day i remember the guy's face he was actually the sikh society's president's father at the time so i didn't want to <laughs> i didn't want to offend him but i just kind of went they've literally got the Pradhan from the Gurdwara to come and give a talk and you're like you know what i think we can do far far better and to be honest i thank him infinitely because if it wasn't for his lecture I wouldn't have kind of taken on in a sense almost like a personal responsibility to be like you know what if you're not gonna provide a narrative that is honest to us and also provides a a, a full narrative to the people listening then hopefully I can or someone else can Um, and you're right Within those years, if you can if you can just spark a little bit of interest, you genuinely don't know the impact that you could have. Like for argument's sake, you influenced uh, you for, you're an influence of mine. So from ten years ago, oh, thank you, I've mm. been following you ever since. Thank you. And actually, people like yourselves have re-inspired me to get back into this and to also see that we don't know everything. Um, we like so mm. the, the research you're doing just goes to show that the research done so far it's it's only gone to a certain extent and and we're just taking it a little bit further and you're completely mm. correct which is if we can just spark even if it's just a thought even if it's just an idea even if it's just like you know what i think everything they've said is wrong and i'm gonna go find out the truth perfect i'd like so one thing i didn't expect kind of restarting uh, ramblings was just the response um, some mm. of the messages I've had from uh, people who who are from all over the globe Canada Australia India and they are so thankful and I'm like what to be honest I'm actually just spending my spare time on something that I kind of enjoy on one hand c- cannot actually explain how much that type of uh, mm. feedback means but equally it goes to show that there is a want there's almost like a thirst for understanding
1: It's interesting, like sometimes you don't know the impact you have on other people. I love this is something I do in my spare time I just I do it for my own sake as well 10% of it I put out on Instagram or whatever but yeah. for, for most of it I just like e- egotistically I do it for my own sake because I, I find it so interesting but all of a sudden a person who's been following me for five years I've never spoken to them I've never uh, written with them or anything they, they write me and they're like oh my god your posts are like they've changed so much and I've blah 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 and changed me and my perspective and blah blah I'm like I, I didn't even know who this person was and I've tried that numerous times and, and like, this is like sometimes what keeps me going. Sometimes I'm like, I need to take a social media break. I spend too much time. I should probably read some more books instead. Or, it actually has an impact on people. And when I'm not right putting up anything for two three weeks, sometimes people are writing like, when is the next post coming? Yeah, um, yeah. And then like, or I have to. I actually have to do it for them not just look at my own egotistical need for a social media break, but actually just put out something <laughs> that inspires people, apparently. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying I inspire people. I'm saying the material inspires
0: people. No, no, completely. And and this is just it. It's not you or I who are inspiring anyone. Far from it, man. I'm probably the most it's, uninspirational person in the world.
1: Same here, same here. But, but it's the it's, material, yes, and the approach. And it's the that narrative.
0: content. Yeah. With the work that's going on with people like yourselves and, and obviously loads of other people, which hopefully we'll get to interview, the future is actually pretty positive when it comes to Sikh thought, philosophy, Definitely. ideas. Definitely. Um, not only is it being kind of owned by Sikhs, but it's also actually being kind of re-investigated with a far more, as you were saying right at the beginning of the podcast, which is a far more objective lens. So yeah, more power to people like yourselves and others.